For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with the great-granddaughter of the woman the town of Sedona was named after and learn how she used a century of family history to write her new book. And get some recommendations for healthier, happier sleep from a University of Arizona researcher. Plus, meet a Tucson woman who celebrated her 100th birthday this year and still finds time for the motorcycle shop that she and her husband opened back in 1945. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Motor cars can go quite fast, especially outside of town. 25 miles an hour is not uncommon. It is amazing, a bit like flying must be, the wind rushing past and everything a blur out on the open road. I hadn't realized how nervous I was until we arrived, and when I got out, my legs were almost shaking. In a way, something is lost at that speed. You see everything so briefly, it barely registers. I guess progress takes getting used to. That was Lisa Schnebley Heidinger, reading in the voice of her great-grandmother, Sedona Arabella Miller Schnebley. The surprising story of how Sedona came to Arizona and why one of the Southwest's most popular destinations now bears her name is told in Lisa Schnebley Heidinger's new book, The Journal of Sedona Schnebley. Beginning just after 1900, it provides a personalized window into Arizona history across the span of the 20th century. And I talked with Lisa about how the book came to be. So Sedona was my great-grandmother. She was born in 1877 in Gorin, Missouri, came to Arizona with her husband, T.C. or Carl Schneble, in 1901. He named what became the town after her in 1902 when he started the first post office in that area. So my father, Larry, is their grandson and likes to say he's the only person in the history of the world who is Sedona's grandson and Sedona's grandfather because we named our daughter Sedona after my great-grandma. He also tells the story that had his grandfather had his way, it would have been called Schneble Station. And very possibly today, no one would want to live there. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And when I first read Tom Beale, who wrote, they should have called it Schnebley, even I, who am proud of the name, was thinking, bad idea, until he followed through. People want to live in Aspen, Angel Fire, Sedona, Cloudcroft. It would be empty and unspoiled and beautiful. I had imagined that the job of postmaster and the, the establishing that station would actually take up a bigger part of the story of your great-grandparents' lives, but it, it didn't really play out that way in the book. In fact, the first time that they lived in Sedona, it was only briefly. Um, what made them leave and what made them come back? What made them leave is that their five-year-old daughter, Pearl, died. They were rounding up the cattle. One got away. Her cow pony took off after it, and Sedona, who had 
had a, another smaller daughter watched her trampled and killed and I think was already stretched too thin from all the work of being the only place in town where guests could board and the laundry and the children and the cooking and the worry and the raw wilderness and got so depressed that the doctor said to Carl, move her or lose her. And he left to save his wife's life. And she says later, when he says, after they've gone home to Missouri, and she's kind of healed, you know, I want to go back, Carl says. And she wants to go back too, but she's thinking, I'm all right. I don't know if I could be all right there. So they go to Colorado for some years, and finally she is sufficiently strong and secure and healed to say, let's go home. And then they go back to Sedona and live their last 20 and 25 years there. And outside of Pearl, the, the young girl who died at age five, how many children did they have? They had six. Um, Ellsworth, who they called Tad, was my grandpa, her, their oldest boy. And he's the one who came out west with her and Pearl when he was three and was very proud of his mother and would correct people who came to the town. Most of us say Sedona through common usage. Her name was Sedona. I tend to say Sedona to my daughter, but he loved his mother and never left her for long. He was very, very close to her. Then they had Hank, who was the funny one um, when they were back in Missouri, and then, oh, Genevieve while they were still in Sedona. So she was the baby Sedona was holding, riding the horse, seeing Pearl trampled. So Tad, Pearl, Genevieve, back to Missouri, Hank is born, on to Colorado, Clara and Margaret were born there, six kids. <laughs> Quite a family. So tell me, Lisa, what kind of documents, what kind of material did you have to draw on to create this book? Not as much as I wanted, because what I wanted to find was this book. We knew that she wrote for an hour after lunch every day, which I always did as well. And I thought, okay, there's got to be a journal here somewhere. So all the archives, the family papers, the special collections, everything I could find, I kept hoping there was a journal, and there wasn't. She must have written letters or burned a journal. So at the end of the day, I thought, I'm getting too old to keep kicking this down into the future. I better accept that her journal doesn't exist, take the thousands of facts that I have collected over literally 30 years, stories from her children, her friend, Helen Jordan, her grandchildren, the archives, the census records, the letters that I could find that were sent to her, and weave them into one document that is as sincerely and rigorously as possible her voice, as I had heard it quoted. So I would sit down, close my eyes, say a prayer, think, what are we going to write about? And the time they went to McGuireville, and it would just flood out. It must have fermented and cured for 30 years, because it came out, and I would almost read it with a sense of discovery. Oh, they did that. Oh, she thought this. And that's, so I trust it. I believe that it is as close as possible to being her voice. In the time after Sedona married um, T.C., they became almost an archetypal Arizona settler family in some ways. They had to be tough. They had to learn how to live in this environment. You mentioned that they brought seedlings and things with them, and they took. The, the, the earth here accepted those seedlings, and soon they had fruit and food. And Orchards, yeah. Reflect on the ways that that pioneer spirit kind of flowed through this family and also seems to be the archetypal Arizona story. I'm sure that nothing she experienced was startling compared to all the other women who didn't happen to have a, a town named after them. I bet it was a very common existence. I'm sure you're right. And there's one chapter that describes what she does in a day. And my editor, who's a Tucson resident, Nathan Shelton, wrote in the margin, 
I can't believe how hard women worked. And I think that was the story of women settling the West um, and feeding the chickens and making sure the fire doesn't go out and all those thousands of other things. Daddy called his grandpa Carl T.C. a scrabbler. He had to know how to do everything, fix wagon springs, plant trees, you know, keep them from freezing, um, build irrigation, unclog them, build a dam. You know, they, they really did have to develop wide and deep skill sets to make it. And Sedona is so famous now as a destination for people to visit, to see the sites, to relax, to take personal time there. And it turns out in the book that your great-grandmother actually wasn't that fond of entertaining. She <laughs> she was painfully shy, and everybody who knew her, if she laughed, she would almost cover her mouth. There was a decorousness to her. She went to a finishing school, so she was a decorous person, and she was not emotional in a large, grand, dig-me way. She was very, very close to the bone, adored Carl, but felt foolish if he teased her or held her hand if anybody was around. And that was partly the times, but it was also just her, because my daughter Sedona's just like it, just <laughs> roiling inside and reserved outside. She made herself learn to talk to guests, and she accepted that Carl was going to bring them, will she or nil she. Um, and she said at one point, um, I don't know if he expects me to someday slap myself on the forehead and say, why, I do like to entertain. I only now realize it. <laughs> or if he just was so proud of her and proud of the town, he couldn't stop himself. But she always cooked lunch for four when it was the two of them because she knew somebody would be coming. If your great-grandmother could visit Sedona today and see what it has become, what do you think she might make of that? I think she would be astonished. I think she barely let herself believe it was going to be a real town. I think she thought it was just sort of a phase that they had embraced and that it would fade when they left and was relieved, I believe, from everything I've read and seen and heard, that it was going to, to live on after them. Carl adored it, and she was so pleased for him that Schnebley Hill Road became the name of that road. He didn't name it. He just led the crew that built it, and the name was assigned to it by other people. Uh, I think she would be astonished at how much leisure people can have these days, you know, that they don't need to work farms there anymore, that it can be that many hotels, that people are able to. I think it's ironic always when I go up there that they came and it was five families and empty, and they they fought to feel civilized in the wilderness. And now people go there to feel wilderness in civilization. We've, we've turned it backwards. There's a, a small excerpt from the book that I'd like you to read for us now that begins with an idea that the beauty of Sedona at that time really seemed like it belonged to them. It was theirs. Things seemed more three-dimensional than things back home, than everywhere that wasn't taken up by those endless variations of stone was filled, festooned, decorated by green growing things, and laid over all was the music of the water. Whatever fatigue remained was replaced by energy. I felt healed of some miasma I hadn't known I had. I was galvanized, grateful, and ready to begin. Lisa, how did working on this book change your perception and maybe in a way your relationship to your great-grandmother? Far more deeply than I had ever guessed that it would. I thought that she was 
my dad's grandma and I knew the stories about her and Carl was more fun and she was more quiet and I had been in Sedona my entire life and knew where they had walked where they had lived I didn't expect more than that but the first time I drove up to do a signing at the Historical Society pretty recently and I realized what exists now that their story is real now for everybody besides me and that now it's never going to go away and that when she got vexed at Carl she'd say I'm going to go live in the barn and now that's forever now it's written down and everything they went through has been preserved and I felt a a sort of a humbled reverence for that and for them that I had not felt heretofore. Um, I was surprised that they mean so much more to me, having gotten to be maybe a conduit for that, um, to keep it, so that people don't have to wonder um, where they lived, what they did, because now we know. On Saturday, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., Lisa Schneebly-Heidinger will be talking about her book, The Journal of Sedona Schneebly, at a Christmas celebration being held at the Sedona Heritage Museum. We have a link for details on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. sleep. It's a vital component of good health. But as more discoveries are made about the true nature of sleep, the more scientists are beginning to realize how little we actually know about it. The subject has always been a source of fascination for Michael Grandner, who today holds degrees in psychiatry, psychology, and medicine, including a postdoctoral degree in sleep and circadian neurobiology. Next, in a special segment of Arizona Science, Leslie Tolbert, a Regents Professor in Neuroscience at the University of Arizona, talks with Grandner about some of the things he has learned in conjunction with his work at the UA Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic. So tell us, what aspects of sleep are important? The length of time we sleep, the depth of sleep, whatever. Um, What aspects are important? And then what are the impacts on our health? Sleep is a lot like diet. Diet represents a biological requirement for human life. You need to eat. You know, your body requires food. The importance of that food is based on not just quantity. You need to get enough calories to survive, but that's not it. You also have nutrition and there's quality of that diet as well. And, you know, just like the whole body eats, you know, the the food impacts many systems in the body, everything from your metabolism to your brain function to how all your organs work. A lot of this is related to fat and, and, and food intake and metabolism and nutrition. Sleep is very similar. It's also a biological requirement of human life. Uh, your body is built to sleep. Sleep is, a, sleep is a fundamental part of how our biology is built. Uh, it's not optional. And just like diet, it's not just about quantity. It's also about quality, where getting enough sleep is important for your body to be able to do the things it needs to do while you're asleep. But also the quality of sleep you're getting is important, where if it's kept too shallow, which is often seen in undiagnosed sleep disorders or even other medical conditions that keep sleep shallow, the quality of sleep isn't good. Uh, The good news is that's 
it's very treatable. Actually, sleep problems are much easier to fix than diet and exercise. We can get into that later. Well, that sounds um, good. Yeah, it's actually good news. So it impacts many areas in the body. And similarly, it impacts things like metabolism, heart health, brain health, uh, mood. It just seems like wherever we look, sleep has its fingers there. So when if we want to look at our ability to stay focused, sleep is important. Our ability to make decisions, take risks, how we do that. Sleep seems to play important roles. How we recognize... Uh, emotions on people's faces. Sleep seems to play important roles. Even things like how our body processes insulin and glucose, how we secrete hormones, how our body reacts to the environment. You know, sleep has its fingers in all these systems because it's one of these foundational elements of human life. So how does each of us find the amount of sleep and the quality of sleep that's right for us? Is it the same for you and me? probably about as much as, as diet is the same for everybody. There's probably a lot of commonalities. You can't say that everyone needs the exact same number of calories per day. You can guess, and there's a range that's what's normal. So most people probably need seven to eight hours. Um, most people probably don't need more than eight hours, and most people who are getting less than seven hours are probably not getting as much as they need for optimal functioning. So some signs that your sleep quality isn't good, besides going into a sleep lab and measuring your sleep, if you wake up and you don't feel refreshed and that feeling doesn't go away, like there's something called sleep inertia that protects your sleep. It's the thing that when you wake up during the night, it gets you back to sleep quickly. It's a good thing. Uh, it doesn't know what an alarm clock is. So when you wake up in the morning, it's that voice saying, but the bed is nice and warm. You should get back in there. You know, we, we will handle you getting back to sleep. When you get up, the sleep inertia will start fading away. And usually it goes away after a few minutes. If it doesn't, that's a sign that something in your sleep wasn't optimal, where you weren't getting the recovery that your body was trying to get. Another sign that something's wrong with your sleep quality is if falling asleep is a little too easy. If you lay down and you're asleep before your head hits the pillow, you waited a little too long. Um, and also, if you're trying to go through your day and you're nodding your head and you're really having trouble getting through, or if you're the kind of person that says, if I stop moving, I'm going to fall asleep, that's a sign that there's probably something going on with your sleep that you should probably uh, talk to your doctor about or something. How does each of us regulate our sleep in the most effective way? That's a good question, especially since we have so many other impingements on our time. So often when people are trying to regulate their sleep, usually sleep is sort of whatever's left over and whatever time is left over in the day, we, we allow sleep to take. We very much see sleep as a cost of time. Like we have to spend time to sleep. But really we should be looking at sleep as an investment in time. And by investing some time in sleep, we're actually reaping some great returns. And so the one question would be, how do we experiment with our sleep a little bit? One way is to not try and make any large changes. Give yourself an extra 15 minutes. Go to bed 15 minutes early. I bet you can find 15 minutes. Maybe not an hour. Find 15 minutes. See if you're able to fall asleep just as fast as you were before and see how you feel the next day. If you don't feel any worse, Give yourself another 15 minutes. See, see, where the, see how far you can go before, you know, you're not really feeling that time anymore. You're waking up a little more. Uh, you're not falling asleep as easily. I mean, experiment with your time a little bit. You, maybe you're also sleeping too much. Maybe you cut down a little with 15 minutes and see if you still feel fine. Though that's not the best way because some people feel fine even though they are impaired, but that's sort of the best we got right now. So what are the health problems that we develop if we don't get enough sleep, enough good sleep? If you take a group of people... And one group of people are getting 
on average seven to eight hours. And another group of people are getting on average six hours or less. And they're both starting out without health problems. The people with sleep of six hours or less uh, are probably about twice as likely to become obese. Um, they're about 30% more likely to become diabetic. They're about 20% more likely to develop high blood pressure when they didn't have it before. Um, they're more, you're more likely to become depressed. You're more likely to be overstressed and, and you're more likely just not to live as long. And it'll also impact productivity. So a lot of people are saying I'm trading sleep for work, but what you're really doing is you're working less effectively. What if I told you, if you gave up 4% of your day for an extra hour of sleep, you can get much more than that back in terms of extra productivity. What are different ways that it impacts? It impacts health and disease in general. It looks like pretty much wherever we look, sleep is related to the amount of colds you get. I mean, wherever we look, sleep is related somehow because it regulates everything from the immune system to metabolism to brain function. So getting enough healthy sleep, it's just like trying to eat a healthy diet. So there's a last question that yeah. I have to ask you sure. then. What is the one piece of advice you would give to all of us who are not sure we're getting enough sleep or enough good quality sleep? Probably the best piece of advice I can give, the best bang for your buck is if you're in bed and you can't sleep for any reason, you're not sleeping, get up, get out of bed. You're not doing yourself any favors by staying in bed. Even if it's midnight. Yeah, even if it's midnight. What's happening is if you want to develop insomnia, the best way to do that is to lay in bed not being able to sleep. Because what's going to happen is your brain and body are going to learn that the bed is a place to be awake and tossing and turning, not sleeping. So what you want to do to head that off or even to deal with it if you're already sort of there, if you wake up and you don't fall back asleep, get up, get out of bed, do something else. As long as it's not, you're not turning on bright lights or being too active, then try again later. Even if you sleep a little less tonight, you'll save your sleep for tomorrow. I'll take that advice. Thanks very much, Michael. All right, Michael. thank you. Leslie Tolbert spoke with Michael Grandner, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona. You can listen to regular episodes of Arizona Science every Friday at noon and 7 p.m. on NPR 89.1. And you can find the Arizona Science Archives at azpm.org. This past June, Tucson business owner Helen Musselman celebrated her 100th birthday. But this centenarian isn't ready to squeeze the handbrakes anytime soon. She still works almost full-time at the motorcycle shop that she and her husband opened back in 1945, Musselman Honda. Here's Vanessa Barchfield with a profile. I'm Helen Musselman, and I, have, I own this business, and I started it in 1945 with my husband, Darwin Musselman. They called him Pappy because he was the oldest person racing with the, with the younger guys. How did you meet your husband? We went, I went to this dance with this group of young people and we were there having a good time. And he came in and came up and asked me to dance. So I danced with him and we got acquainted and I gave him my name. And a day or two later he called and uh, talked me into going to a movie with him. Then he got me riding his motorcycle with him, and <laughs> and just one thing led to another, and then a year later we got married. 
He just, he was just the one for me, and that's all there was to it. He was in the Air Force during the Second World War, and they shipped him to Douglas, and uh, then when he got out of the service, he said, I'm going to have a motorcycle store. I didn't know anything about motorcycles, but I learned. And when we first got into the business, there was only two brands of motorcycles, Harley-Davidson and Indian. And then in 59, we took on Honda, and they were selling like hotcakes. And so we won our trip to Japan by selling those little motorcycles. <laughs> we went to Japan in 61, and we got into the airport, and we went down this red carpet. One of the ladies that was with us says, don't they know we're just plain old motorcycle dealers? <laughs> I have done everything in this business, from helping with the mechanical stuff, to ordering parts, to ordering motorcycles, to doing the books. And I kept the books by hand for years. And then in 85, we got a computer. So then I had to learn how to use the computer. <laughs> so that was a chore in itself. I worked five days a week, which is almost full time. So, and Honda did a, an advertising movie film of me because I'm their oldest living dealer. It's on YouTube. You go and it's Helen on Wheels. I'm honored to have you meet my friend, Helen Musselman. Hi, Helen. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so um, not only celebrating your 100th birthday, but still being at work so and um, being so active. A lot of people will want to know what your secret is. Well, I would say just being active. Be, I come to work every day. It keeps my mind going. And I have a stationary bicycle that I ride four miles in the evening when I go home. <laughs> I lost this leg in 2007, so I have a bum leg. And yet still you ride I your bike? I, st I still ride my bicycle, my stationary bicycle, because it doesn't bother me to do that. But walking, my legs wear out. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> I hope I can live to be 105 or 106. I don't know. I went to the Centurion thing at the Tucson Medical Center and there was a lady there that was 108 so I got high hopes <laughs> <laughs>